weird and wonderful wounded healers. I just made that up. Do you like it? Is it cute? I don't know. Well, we'll workshop it. We'll test it out. We'll see how it goes. But hello, and welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino, and I am a psychotherapist in Chicago, a practice owner, a teacher, a speaker, and God knows what else I do, right? But I am glad that you found me here, and I'm excited to share today's episode with you. First things first, though, I just want to check in and see how y'all are doing with this reopening situation. I have been posting about it on Instagram and other social media platforms that I'm feeling a little weird about it. Going into places without a mask on feels weird. It feels wrong. I'm also overstimulated by all of the action that's happening out in the world. And what I really want is for us all to have a group therapy session about the trauma that we suffered. <laughs> but it seems like the whole world is in denial and just pretending that this never happened. So it's a little bit of a reflection of my childhood trauma, but I digress. So just wanted to check in and see how you were taking care of yourselves. One of the things I've been doing is listening to a shit ton of podcasts lately now that I'm actually going back out in the world, I have like driving time to listen to podcasts. And I just started listening to one called Salome. And it's about Carl Jung's Red Book and like history and astrology. It's super cool. It feels really resonant also with my experiences in uh, my ketamine treatment, which I can tell you more about in upcoming episodes. But that's one thing I'm listening to that I really enjoy. And that's Feeding My Soul. So I'm curious what you're up to. Tell me on social media. Let me know. Speaking of that, you can find me on Instagram at Head Heart Therapy, and that is by far my favorite place to connect with listeners. So without further ado, let me introduce you to today's wonderful guest. Dr. Margot Jacot is a licensed clinical psychologist. She's a national lecturer on trauma recovery, behavioral issues, LGBTQ issues, and working with couples. Dr. Jacot is the founder and chief care officer of the Juniper Center, one of the largest woman-owned counseling and therapy practices across Chicagoland, with over 40 clinicians at five locations and via telehealth. Margot also has a podcast called The Mental Health Business Mentor, which I was able to be on. And I think it came out in April, maybe. Anyway, Margot's wonderful. Margot's amazing. I'm really excited for you to hear more about Margot and her story. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Margot Jacot. Margot! Sarah, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. We were talking before this started and uh, today the sun is shining. I'm in my closet, but I do have a window in my closet and I can see the sun is out there. So that's pretty rad. Loving the sun. It is totally rad. And I'm telling you, the older I get, the more I notice whether the sun is out or not. So really? Oh, totally. Yeah. See, my mom is dead. I need someone who can tell me all of the things that happen as you age now. So oh, I might call you. <laughs> I will be your crone resource for sure. I need especially menopause shit because that is already starting. Oh, honey, I've got you covered. I'm happy uh, to share anything you want about that. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I'm so into that. You know, right, because nobody prepares us for that. And my mother died when I was in my, you know, I was like 21. And I didn't know anything about this. And I remember trying to connect with other women. And it was a thing. Like, please, somebody tell me what this thing is going to be about. So anyway, anytime, I'm happy to give you Aww. any insight I might have. 
Well, y'all don't even know Margot yet, but now you obviously know she's the nicest person in the universe for offering that support. So before we really dig into all this stuff more, can you tell people who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. Thanks, Sarah. And thank you for saying, saying those kind words. That's sweet of you. I think we all just have to help each other out, right? I mean, that's Agreed. just all there is to it. Anyway, I'm Margot Jaco. I am, you know, human first, psychologist, probably third, <laughs> wife and mother, second. And I own a practice called the Juniper Center. We're a counseling practice in the Chicago area. Yeah. And a podcast host, don't forget. And a podcast host. Yes, please come listen. It's called Your Mental Health Business? Mentor, right. Mentor, that's right. And that's really what it is. It's really about consulting for, again, it's that sort of thing, like just having walked this path. If I think about what are some things that would have been helpful for someone to tell me, those are the things I try to talk about. And you were kind enough to be a guest and talking about how important it was for people to do their own work which has been a very popular episode for us because, boy, I think as therapists, hopefully we get that because what you do personally and what you do professionally are inextricable, even if you have good boundaries. Right. Oh, my God. Right. Well, today's episode is all about you. Woohoo! <laughs> so I love therapist origin stories, and I'm always so curious, like, how do our little crazy brains decide, I know I'm going to become a therapist. So right. I'm curious, wherever in your journey you would like to start as far back as you would like to go, tell me how you got here. Absolutely. So, well, my first experience with therapy, I had to be 10. I was in fifth grade hmm. and I grew up in a pretty chaotic house, as is true for a lot of us. And it manifested in some physical symptoms. And so I was like mm -hmm. a regular at the pediatrician's office. And, you know, they were lovely and we got along quite well. But finally, the pediatrician said to my mother, you know, I think there's nothing going on with her physically. I think you might want to, you know, see if she's got some stress or anxiety or something. So my mother was lovely enough to take me to a therapist. And that's a big deal for her to like, actually take that and do it. Wow. My parents, you know, there was no insurance back then. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. My father was a factory worker. This was expensive. We didn't have a car. We lived far north. Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up the first part of my life. We lived in Lincoln Park before the gentrification. Huh. And once the gentrification happened... White flight. Actually, we grew up on a very Puerto Rican block. We were the only white folks on this very Puerto Rican block. I learned a little oh, bit of Spanish here and there. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was more like economic flight. Like we just couldn't uh, afford to live could, Oh, <laughs> so you got pushed out. Wow. We got, right. We got priced out of the market. Wow. Anyway, then we landed in Rogers Park, which was nice. It was, you know, we were right near the Tui and Western area in, in Chicago and Anyway, so to get downtown, we didn't have a car. Neither of my parents drove. So my mother had to take me on the bus and the train. It was a big commitment for her. Wow, and yeah. she made sure I got there. I probably saw this guy. His name was Mr. Miller. And this he had the exact same name as the guy who was part of the Watergate trial. Exact same first and last name. Mm. First name, he was just Mr. Miller to me. But So that was the era. It was during the Watergate trial. So down we wow. would go. And I probably had three sessions with this guy. And he finally said to me, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I think you're just afraid of your father. I think it really stresses you out. Wow. I, Sarah, remember that moment sitting in this guy's office. And I evidently 
you know, I was 10. There was no play therapy. I did I just needed somebody to listen. And Ugh. so he heard me. And that even as I talk about it now, I can feel it. Mm. It's like a warm chill, mm. for lack of a better word, sort of a yeah. warm sensation through my body because it was such a meaningful moment. And I didn't think much of it other than I remember being so relieved that that's really what was going on because it made intuitive sense to me that we can do something about it. So mm. then I, I decided I was going to copy Lucy Van Pelt and I had the best from the Peanuts. Yeah. So I had a little next to my desk, I had the best fifth grade teacher in the world, Miss King. And she let me have a stool and a sign on the front of my desk that said the doctor is in. And so kids would come up and pay me a penny in fifth grade and tell me about whatever their problem This is the cutest was. story I've ever heard. I so love glad. this. And so that was the beginning. And then, you know, I kind of did life and I was going to be a dancer for a while. And then I was going to be an attorney. I had all my law, pre-law stuff done in college. And I thought, any good lawyer knows a little psychology. I got into the psych classes and boom, that was it. So I was hooked from there. But it started when I was 10. Yeah. As you were talking about that, like warm chill you were feeling, I think I was like sensing into that as well. And just thinking about the gift of attunement for a child who hasn't felt attuned to. Exactly, Sarah. That's exactly what he did. And it was such a monumental moment. Hmm. Such a moment. Yeah. And I'm curious if you're willing to share what changed at home after that? Or did anything have to change? Was it just literally that you were heard and you were like, well, maybe I can handle this. I don't know. Well, so I used to get these horrible stomach aches. That's how it would manifest. I would be I did too. down right for, right? for mm -hmm. like a week. I'd be out of school, writhing in pain. You know, now I know it was probably a nervous system response and all of that. And I think I was also the lightning rod in the family, you know, emotionally, like I could just feel everything that was going on in the family. And boy, it would, it all lived in my system. So <laughs> my dad, and I will now say my poor dad, because I now understand him much, much more. He's been gone for about 15 years and my mom's been gone longer, but so I, I'm very much at peace with him. And I have a great, much greater understanding of who he was. And it wasn't like a, oh, he did the best he could. No, I think he could have done way better, but he didn't. And for whatever reason, he didn't. So Mr. Miller was kind enough. He said, you know, I think really I'm going to bring your parents in and I'm going to speak to them. And he did. And we never went back. So Ugh. all I remember was my mother saying, I don't think your dad liked Mr. Miller very much. And I'm sure he didn't if he shared that little tidbit with them. So, you know, I think that was my father was an immigrant. It was all foreign to him, literally. So but I'll tell you what changed was I had externalized. I was able to then externalize what had happened. I never had that stomach ache again. Wow. Well, that's not true. I had it the night before my mother died. I was away at college. And I swear I was like the, the lightning rod miles away. You know, it sounds sort of mystical or like I'm into mysticism, which, you know, but it was, I think I, I am. could feel it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I could feel it coming. Well, quite frankly, I mean, I we could have a whole nother conversation about that. I'm a big believer in some things that don't necessarily make sense to some folks. But, but after that, I really got it that whatever was happening just wasn't about me. What he said, those words, here we are now, you know, almost 50 years later. And I remember very clearly. Mm. 
it's funny how, you know, sometimes we as therapists think that we're ineffective or we're not doing enough, but you literally had three sessions with this guy and he changed your life. So that's huge. And then changed other people's lives because it shifted my ability then to understand that this was about me being sensitive and that was a good thing, which was another thing he had said. Yeah. People around me, I think it changed things for them too. And I, I wonder how many therapists would not identify themselves as some sort of like lightning rod for the family or empath, like who's walking around as a therapist not having had that experience? Right? I don't know. <laughs> right. right? And exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. I think it's really common. You kind of shyly were like, okay, we could talk about like things maybe people don't believe or understand, but I would love to go there because sure. that's kind of one of my jams. And having both parents passed away, I think is kind of a, it's a unique experience to be able to talk about. And I'm, I'm, I find it really interesting that you said you had that stomach ache the night before your mom died. And I get a deeper desire for connection with a person right before they pass. And it's usually like a couple months, like it happened mm. with my grandma. It happened with my dad. I knew my mom was dying. So that wasn't quite the same. But then my my grandma who just passed, I had just reached out to her, like mm. asking her a bunch of questions. And, and I was like, I wasn't really aware of it, but like something was going on. But so I'm curious, like, have you cultivated any sort of relationship with your folks now that they've passed on or have any sort of like... I don't know. Where does your mysticism and woo-woo lie, Margot? Bring it. <laughs> it's deep. It is deep. And you know, it's so funny because it's I am such a science freak. You know, I just love the science of therapy and all of that. But I'll tell you, and I think it was really solidified for me a couple of years ago. Someone I know is a medium and she was worried. I love that. She was, and I've, I'll have things that I have learned to trust that feel like it's probably that, you know, that I'm sensing something, I'm feeling something, I will hear something. It's often auditory. And I, I used to think it was just my own internal thoughts. And sometimes I don't think that so much anymore. So anyway, this person said, look, I feel sometimes like you're humoring me. Like you, I tell you I'm a medium and you seem really supportive and nice about it. But look, I want you to talk to this guy, Thomas John. I want you to have a session with him. Have you heard of Thomas John? No, but now I want his number. Oh yeah. And, and you know, he did like this thing where he would Uber people around in New York and do readings and all kinds of interesting stuff. Wait, is he the, the taxi cab? Seatbelt psychic. I think that's what it, it was called. Have, it might have been, that might have been him. But anyway, I knew He's nothing gay. about this guy. I think British? he's gay. Thomas John is <gasps> British, yes. So I absolutely need his number, but go on. Yeah, right? Absolutely. So she got this, I don't know, somehow an inexpensive opportunity to talk to him. And I said, sure, what, you know, what do I have to lose? Because I already had had what felt like some other experiences and I had seen a medium once before. Anyway, so I sit down with the guy and I said, look, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to borrow a friend's phone, not even going to use my own phone. I'm only going to tell him my first name. I don't want this guy to be able to look me up. I don't, you know, I just don't know about this thing. I don't think everyone is like that. I don't think all mediums are, but I was right. skeptical about yeah, this is guy I don't know. And, you know, he rides around mm -hmm. in a taxi and what's that? And, you know, Uber or whatever. So yeah. anyway, so we sit down and he immediately says, you know, I see or I'm here, I don't remember he said I see or I hear somebody who's just like elbowing their way forward. And her name is like a flower. And I, I said, well, Viola, Viola is not a flower. 
Violet? Is there a Violet? I think it's your mother-in-law's mother is what it sounds like. And she's just has some, she wants you to tell her daughter how much she appreciated her taking care of her. I just have to get that out of the way because she's like, she's really pushing her way through. My mother-in-law's mother's name is Violet, was Violet, and she had died. And she, Carol, my mother-in-law had taken care of her for years. Just boom. Wow. And I was like, all right, that's pretty <laughs> Margo then is speechless. Got it. Wow. <laughs> My jaws open, you know. Right. And then he just went on to say, oh, and he just had so many pieces of evidence. Like my brother and I both have a Matthew. My kids are adopted. So we kept the names that their birth mother gave them. Hmm. And I was like, she has to avoid three names. Matthew and two others, because my other son and then my other nephew. No, no, no. Of the three of all the boys' names in the world. Anyway, he said, Well, this doesn't make any sense to me because it looks like there's a repeating name in your family in the same generation. And it's a um, M name. I can't quite see. I'm hearing some. And I never gave him any clues ever. And he knew my father's name was Marcel. My mother's name was Marguerite. Like he had all this stuff. It wasn't like Jane and Jim or, you know, these were more unusual names. He knew I had written a book, which is still, you know, I'm in the editing process of it. I'd written this book. He said, it's eight chapters, very specific. He said, it's, if you really stick with it, I think it could be very helpful to people. Okay. Just all of these things. So from that point on, I had very little doubt because there was no way he could have looked me up. There was no way he could have known anything if he were not the real thing. And this is on the phone with a first name. Wow. And there were plenty of other pieces. So to your question of had I had some connection with my parents before, I describe it as making peace. And I feel like we have had some conversations. And my father's voice in particular is very clear inside of me. Hmm. So, and it's not, you know, it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm just remembering what he used to say. So, you know, someone might argue, well, you know, yes, this is the psyche's way of managing something. And, you know, you needed to come to some resolution. So your mind found a way to do it. Maybe. But I'll tell you, I don't think so. And yeah. then having that reading with Thomas John, I was like, huh, okay. I'm thinking maybe I was right. It's not just, you know, something inside of my own head, which is there's a comfort in that. Right? Yep. I mean, I've found like once my parents died, I recognize the complex nature of grief. And then in working with clients, recognize there's so much healing in whatever belief system you have, but like really leaning into that, whether it's quote unquote true or not, who gives a fuck? It's right. really just about like what makes you feel okay. And that was revolutionary for me. And my mom was like super duper religious. So I was always very mm -hmm. anti-spirituality. But then when she died, I had space to figure out what my own was. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Right. And part of that is like, yes, connecting with ancestors, connecting with the divine in a spiritual way and mm -hmm. which all the witchy things. All the witchy things. But I wish people could see your faces. Your face just lit up as you were talking about that. Oh, so it's, it's important to you. Yeah. And it's a bummer when our families can get in the way of what is our authentic nature. Mm -hmm. Families are good at that. Yeah. You said you were in your 20s when your mom died? Yeah, I was 21. Yeah. What was that like for you? Because that is a really young age to lose a parent. It was pretty lousy. 
you know, obviously it would be. I was so unprepared. She died of a just a massive heart attack. She was 59. Mm. I was 21. You know, she was older than most of my friend's parents. And now I'm 58. You know, I'm going to be, that's like a year away. So there's a little bit of me that can, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I was a little freaked out by 59. Oh my gosh. And it's I hard bet. to imagine. I feel like I'm so young, but she died at that age. Anyway, you know, which happens to people all the time, but so she was very much, it felt like the glue that held the family together. And thank goodness we somehow figured it out. I have an older brother who is at this point, I mean, he's phenomenal. He's just a great guy. And I have a lot of respect for who he is as a person. I was worried at the time about how this is just going to fracture the family. Mm. And my father was just never an emotionally healthy guy, but my brother and I figured it out. I mean, we have a really good, strong relationship and we managed to figure it out. But yeah, I mean, losing her at that stage, you know, and here's where I'm sort of stuttering with this, Sarah. I think because of some of the dynamics in the family, I was very independent by the time she died, even though I was very young. When I think about for my kids, so my older son is 17. And to think in four years that his, you know, one of his, like really his primary attachment would be gone is very hard to imagine. Like this kid would, yeah. I don't know how this kid would do. By the time I was his age, I already felt like I was very independent and very capable of taking care of myself. So it was awful on the one hand, it was shocking. I felt like there was nobody and nothing there for yes. quite a while. Yes. Like I'm, a, I'm really on my own. Like, yes. Really. And that was a blessing and a curse. Because guess what? I figured it out. Probably one of the complicated things that came out of that, the whole thing, even prior to her being gone, is that I know I will be okay no matter what. And I can be a little more independent than is probably always good for me. Hmm. So the opposite can be a challenge, leaning into people, you know, trusting that. And I have very much learned how to do that because I have an amazing wife of 27 years. And I think she's really taught me how to do that. And being a mom actually has taught me how to do that, even though mm. leaning in is in the reverse, but it's just taught me about leaning in, in a way that I don't think I knew by doing mm. it, by being able to do that for them. So on the one hand, it was awful. And there were so many times I thought, oh man, I wish mom was here to see this. She would love this. Mm. Not, I wish mom was here for me. Mm. She was here for her because I think she would have loved it. And she was just a super mm. delightful, sweet, you know, funny, creative soul. And life just was, I think it was too much. Mm. So I don't know if that answers your question, Sarah, but it should be like an easy, oh, it was a terrible time. And, and it was, but maybe not for the reasons people would think. Well, that's what's so complex about grief. Right. Well, because it really is. It's so flavored by the relationship that you have with that person, all of the little nuances. So, of course, it's never it's never simple. And I am on a campaign to strike sorry from your loss from our vocabulary, because I think that's the stupidest, most trite bullshit thing you hello? can say when somebody <laughs> dies. Know, right. My thoughts and prayers are with you. 
what the fuck is that? <laughs> right. And what the fuck? You don't know if it was like loss is such a, mm-hmm. a simple, stupid word that does not encapsulate what an experience is like to actually lose right. somebody who was impactful in your life. Right. I think that's very well said. Loss is too pithy. It doesn't cover it. Right. And it's a throwaway phrase now, don't you think? Well, it is. And the thoughts and prayers and, you know, like we have our standard script. And Mm -hmm. I remember thinking, you know, and of course, I'm thinking of something that happened 35 years ago. So it's tainted by time or altered by time. And I remember thinking the day afterward, like, how is the world still spinning And I was walking somewhere on campus at school. I don't know what the hell was going on, but it's like, how can this be that the world looks like, like the tectonic plates have not just shifted in an unalterable way? Yes. I remember feeling that way at the time, like it was big. It shook me. Of course. How could it not? And so, yes, I knew I would, you know, I survived and I, I don't need anybody anyway and blah, blah, blah. But I do remember that feeling. So loss like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry you just had to endure an earthquake that just buried you under concrete that it's going to be years before you dig your way out of. I'm so sorry. Yes. Yes. I remember too, looking around thinking like, you people are normal right now and I'm not normal. Mm -hmm. Like what is going on inside of me is not normal. And everyone's just like going about their business, doing their thing. And like the complicated storm inside, like everything that you've described about like feeling utterly alone, like the tectonic plates shifting. I totally relate to all of that. Mm. How old were you when your parents died? So, well, my parents died nine months apart, which was really cute of them. Yeah. So I was 34 with both parents. And then at 35, I had none. Oh, my gosh. Right. Orphaned in one year. Yeah. And I knew it. As soon as my dad died, my mom had had breast cancer and was in remission. But when he died, I was like, she'll be gone within the year. I just knew it. And they'd been divorced for 25 years. But I knew it. Like I knew that that was going to be the story. And it happened. Yeah. Nine, nine months later. Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh gosh. That's tectonic, right? That's tectonic plates across the globe shifting. Right. And it's funny. I had not funny, haha, but interesting Mm. that year, a bunch of my friends lost their parents. And I mean, being in your thirties, that's not normal at that point in time. But I feel like since my parents died, and of course, like, you know, when something happens to you, you see it all around you. But I've talked with so many friends to therapist friends who are really leaning into the the complexity of the relationship and the, you know, there's obviously like sadness, grief, Mm -hmm. anger. But for me, there was also relief. There was also space that I'd never had before. I didn't realize the energetic space that was taken up by the oppression, really. I mean, I don't know if that's too strong a word, but that's what it felt. I felt oppressed my whole life by not being seen clearly, not being attuned to. Yeah. Oh, completely. Sarah, I hear you. And this is something that doesn't get talked about enough. I feel a lot of compassion for you, for myself, for other people who had complicated relationships with parents. Mm -hmm. I alluded to the fact that my dad was a tough customer. And the day that I found out, you know, we made the decision that he needed to go into hospice. He'd been Mm -hmm. sick and wasn't getting any better. And 
And there was such a wave of relief. I remember mm-hmm. thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of person am I? <laughs> like, I'm I'm a little giddy. Like, I'm going to be free of this. And I never heard anybody talk about it in that way. I have since then. And I've heard clients be able to talk about it. And there's such shame connected with that. Like, mm-hmm. I'm a terrible human because I, I'm just relieved that they're gone. Yes. Whew. And I can appreciate that. I think we need to be talking about that part of grieving too, right? And I do think it's part of grief. There's a part of ourselves that we feel like we're that we're not our best selves at that point. And how does that impact how we grieve? And it's complicated. I mean, I think that's sort of the definition of complicated grief, right? I didn't make up anything new here. It's you had a complicated relationship with this person. You have a whole host of feelings, sadness, hurt. This I'll never forget. I went to a um I was having a hard time. And I went to, my wife suggested I go to a writing event that was happening through the hospice organization. And so I mm. went and, you know, it was these couple of women who had lost their husbands and somebody else who had lost a best friend. And, you know, they're writing mm. part of the writing. They're writing these heartfelt, I love you. I miss you. You know, these wonderful writing pieces. And the only thing I could get out was I hate how much I hate you. Wow. <laughs> and you know what? By saying that, and have I really feel like that was a turning point. It was about six months after he died. And I had just released it on these poor people who were sitting in this room and they were like speechless. And the woman said, Honey, have you ever spoken to a therapist? I was like, Yes, I am one. You have no idea. <laughs> Yes, I have multiple times. Anyway, can we stop on that for a second? Like, of course. How rude. How rude yes. of them to to react that way because you get to have whatever fucking feelings you want when you're grieving. Right. And how dare they be shocked by your feelings? Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. That's the shit we got to change. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, thank goodness at that point I wasn't, I didn't give a shit enough to be very mortified by it. But you're right. I mean, if I think back on it, that's kind of rude. I wouldn't say that to somebody, quite frankly. Absolutely not. Right? Of course you wouldn't. No, I wouldn't say that to somebody. And thankfully, just that experience of being able to articulate that while it was still so raw, that's what was stuck. And I needed to acknowledge that there was a part of me that hated a part of him. And once I did that, then I could be sad. Then I could miss the parts of him. And, And since then, I have so many good memories of him that I couldn't access because I was Mm. so mad at him. So, you know, now that you mentioned that, I'm going to be a little aggravated at the facilitator of that group, but you know, 15 years out, I'll get over it. But, but yes, it is kind of a rude way to handle it. Right. And I think our American concept of what family is supposed to be Mm -hmm. is what colors all of this, right? Because you're supposed to love your parents. You're supposed to put family first above everything else. But when you're neglected, abused, ignored, invalidated, Mm -hmm. that's not a safe environment. And so how dare you try to continue to push someone to feel a certain way about people Mm -hmm. that were not safe? That were not safe. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever I hear someone saying they're going to go to an event at a hospice, I say just be aware that, you know, they may not have the kind of psychotherapy training you're expecting. So just be mindful of that. And I'm sure some are, are brilliant and fabulous and, you know, some only know how to help a certain type of grief be shepherded through. 
Right. Well, and if you haven't touched your own complicated grief, then how could you be with another's? Right. And I think in my in my experience, maybe I just have too many complicated relationships, but um, <laughs> in my experience, the only uncomplicated grief is a pet because that is the only true unconditional love in this lifetime. Right. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh, right? That's so true, Sarah. The, two of the worst days of my life are when I had to put dogs down. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing. I love that you're willing to go to that. Yeah, this is a topic that we don't talk enough about. And I haven't talked a lot about, I feel like like right when my parents died and even like probably four years after I'd be like, well, my parents are dead, blah, blah, blah. And like, I talk about it all the time. And now I'm in this stage of healing where I'm finally accessing like the real anger that I never let myself express. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in a deep phase of anger right now. So I have nothing mm -hmm. good to say about that. Mm -hmm. but, uh, right. but yeah, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't talked about it in a minute. Well, you know what? I hope there is plenty of space for you to do that. There is. And I'm sure you have every right and responsibility to yourself to feel that way. So, right. Narm is the shit. It really gets there. Huh. I am intrigued, boy. <laughs> I am intrigued. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's shift into the, the healer talk. So would you consider yourself a healer? Yeah, that it's not a word I typically use to describe myself, quite frankly. So, you know, you and I have had a little bit of this conversation previously when you were a guest on my podcast, and it's not a word that I used to describe myself, but I, I suppose so. <laughs> so that's kind of a walk like a wishy-washy, I suppose so. So when you think of being a healer, Sarah, what are you referencing? And that's a great question because that's exactly why I keep asking it because it, it means different things to different people. I think we're all healers and we also happen to be in professions that are healing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that everybody has the capacity to be a healer. It's just whether you choose that path and whether you use your gifts responsibly. Mm -hmm. Use your powers for good. Exactly. So I, I think we're, I think we're all healers. Mm -hmm. That's how I use it. Yeah. Okay. Do I think what I do is healing to people? Absolutely. And I don't just mean as a therapist. Right. I mean, as somebody who has realized the necessity of attunement in the world. Yes. Right. And really paying attention. And I'm not perfect at it by any remote stretch of the imagination. I can be as distracted as the next person. However, I'm aware of how important it is and how healing it can be just like that experience I had when I was 10. So what I consider myself to be is attuned and that that's the thing that heals. And that took me a good chunk of my life to be able to get to. Mm. What piece of that to recognize that attunement was the thing or, or what part of that took you a long time to get to? I think probably thawing out enough to be able to do it consistently mm. and to not have my own system, my own, you know, lightning rod be so impacted or having to then armor against that so that I, I didn't mm. feel overwhelmed by whatever was coming my way or disconnected or, you know, whatever to mm. be just in it and to feel just fine. Mm, mm -hmm. 
because you're trained in somatic experiencing, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that was a big piece of it? You know what I think was the biggest piece for me, quite frankly. So I did, I was really blessed to have some very good therapists over the course of Mm. time. Each of them contributed something different. Yes. I saw a couple that were just horrible and lousy and that was useful too. (laughs) I remember saying to a guy once, I, I saw one man and it was after my father died and I said, you know... I have to thank you. This is my last session. I have to thank you, but you have taught me. I thought I really wasn't a very good therapist because I was struggling just with identity. And boy, you have taught me how great I am. And I was like, thank you. I meant Did you it say very, that? Yes, I meant it very you badass. Wow. Well, it was the truth because, uh, you know, anyway, you know, and he was a nice enough guy and, and all, but he just didn't get it. He was not, he could mm. not take in what I was saying. He was not attuned. So, But Mm. I think the real turning point was when I was going to study EMDR. And so I saw two EMDR therapists and one was very mechanical Mm -hmm. and the other was highly relational. Mm -hmm. And I remember her looking at me and I was in kind of a loop in some EMDR memory. And she said, Mm. Margo, Margo, Mm. it's over. It's over. And it was perfect. She, I mean, it was loving. It was absolutely what I needed in that moment. Yes. She taught me the ability for something to be over, which nobody had really done before. I saw her for less than a year. It was probably the most impactful, one of the most impactful experiences. Again, kind of it's up there with Mr. Miller when I was 10. Like my system knew that was over. And so by letting go, I was like, oh, yeah, right. This is here. This is now. And so I think it was really at that point that I fully was able to be much more. It's like walking past something and you have that one sweater that always gets caught on the door jam. You know, mm. I felt like I was, I could repeatedly get caught on the door jam emotionally with something. And then I felt like, oh, I took the sweater off. Maybe I don't have to wear mm. this, this sweater. I don't need to get caught on the door jam with this anymore. I don't need it to drag yeah. me down. And it's funny how simple that is and yet how hard it was to actually take it off yes you know right like you wear it your whole life and then you have this one moment and you're like oh well I don't have to do it that way anymore isn't that magical it was completely magical it was it absolutely felt magical and I again I remember walking out of her office and walking down the stairs of her building and I felt like it was just gone so And I didn't really even notice how gone it was until I was in the same situations again and wasn't responding in the same way. That was pretty cool. That's amazing. I've never done EMDR, actually. Oh my gosh, it's pretty phenomenal. And somatic experiencing is likewise really learning about my nervous system and being able to say, oh, I lived in a free state. That's why I seemed so numbed out and cerebral for so long. I was in a a nervous system state of freeze. Oh all right, that made sense to me. So it, again, it was like just another piece of that puzzle of, oh, that's why I respond the way I do, or that's why I responded the way I did. So again, each of them have been really helpful. I haven't done the NARM training, but you know, I feel like I'm getting closer. Like, it's, Wow, what will <laughs> I discover there? I know. Well, what I think is fascinating and kind of awful at the same time, like we get the opportunity to do all these incredible trainings and get the gift of healing as we're learning. What I've recognized with the NARM training, I didn't know I was traumatized. 
I didn't. I started sensory motor psychotherapy training and I had an experience in there because I was like, I don't have any shock trauma. I had an experience in there of having this like flashback of a memory that was like, oh, that's a bigger T than I thought was there, like a bigger Uh T trauma. And then once I got a NARM and really understood more of the nuances of developmental trauma, I'm like, oh, I was real fucking traumatized. And (laughs) now that I know it, I feel it a lot more. I feel like, I think that's the, that's the downside of really getting in touch with your stuff is like, you can't not touch it anymore. Yep. Right. (laughs) Once you get out of shock. Right. Yes. Right. Then you have to deal with it and feel it and work your way through and find your way out. So it sounds like that's partly where you are at the moment. And my exactly where I am out to you, because that is, it's both a profound experience, but oh, it is so fucking hard. And there is no way out but through. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> exactly. Right. We're so smart as therapists. We know that. It's like, damn it. Right. I like that being true. Yeah. Well, before we end, I have to ask you the wounded healer question too. How do you feel about the term wounded healer? You know, I feel fine about it. Again, that's that's kind of a pithy, that's not a great answer. I, again, <laughs> it's fine. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the quote we pull out. Margot says, wounded healer, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> right. That's it. Quote from, from Dr. J. <laughs> Again, we're, yes, we are all wounded. We are all healers. So I lovingly say there's a little redundancy in that, right? But having a name for it mm-hmm. is really important. I don't know. And I probably would be really suspicious of any therapist I ran into who didn't see themselves as having wounds. Right. Do I feel like I'm irreparably damaged? Absolutely not. Can I see really clearly at this point? And I, it's still unfolding as it will forever. But do I see really clearly how that impacts my work, how it impacts my life? Absolutely. And how it benefits the work that I do. Right. Because I think there's a lot of things when I'm talking to people, even if I haven't had the same experience that I really at a felt level can get loneliness, disconnection, trauma, abuse, you know, lack of attunement, all of those things, which are the the main things that I think really hurt people. It's just, it's a matter of degree. So I'm really glad you're talking about these things, Sarah. And I'm super glad you invited me to talk about them as well. You know, I, I've listened to your podcast before. I know what you talk about, what other people talk about who are on your podcast. I think your podcast is amazing. Oh, thank you. And I love the opportunity as much as, as on the one hand, you know, at one point I was thinking, well, how? I didn't know what you were going to ask or where we would go. I didn't prep. That's not what this is about. It's not nope. a content like that. But to be able to just be real people. And to have a real conversation about real things, which is what we talk to people. It's what I talk to my kids about. It's what I talk to my nephews about. It's what I talk to my brother about. It's what I talk to my clients about. It's what I talk to our staff about. So we have to be able to acknowledge that it's who we are and to find peace with it. And part of what I have to thank you for is I have now talked about all that and I still feel very peaceful. Mm. So I don't know that I would have guessed that. Have you said, all right, I'm going to ask you this, this, and this. Some part of me might have been like, oh, shit, I don't want to talk. But I really, I feel like I was able to talk about it, and I still can feel peaceful. So it's sort of the Mm. proof is in the pudding. Does that answer your question at all? Yeah. Okay. And thank you for 
that reflection and I'm just thinking about some of the feedback that I've I've gotten from people who listen and I think the most touching feedback for me is people who assume that because they don't have their shit all figured out that they can't be a therapist because they think they've got to have it all together and you know you talking about going through grief and and us talking about trauma healing as we are therapists yeah you know I really I'm hopeful that we can continue to like de-objectify ourselves right like because I don't want people projecting any sort of power onto us or you know putting us on pedestals thinking we've got all of it together like have you seen the the Betty White meme where it says something at the top like oh you're a therapist so you must have all your shit together and she's like haha throwing her head back (laughs) laughing (laughs) I haven't but now I'm going to look it up and if I can't find it my kids will show it to me yeah but you know what so I've been a therapist for 32 years most of my adult life so I have been figuring this out the whole way and I don't assume I'm done yet Right. So please, you know, it's, I got regular consultation. I saw a therapist. I was in group supervision because I knew there were going to be real vulnerabilities. It's the people who are trying to fly solo and who don't recognize it. They scare me. Not that they don't, not when they have stuff. I mean, I've had our staff come to me and they're so humiliated about something they're going through. I'm like, are you kidding? Expecting me to be judgmental about it. And as long as they're aware, they know it. They can talk about it. They know it's an issue. They need to keep their eye on it. We need to keep our eye on it. I have told people, please go see a therapist, go get a coach, do something. As long as they will do that, it's when they're hiding it. And I can see it. When I watch it come out in their behavior, that's what concerns me. Not that they have it. It's the way they're trying to not have it or pretend we don't have it or not let anybody know. So to your listeners who are therapists and are worried that they're wounded, yay for you. You know, you're human. Welcome to the human race. I hope you find places to heal yourself and talk about it. Do not be ashamed. Find safe people like Sarah. Yay. Just find me on Instagram. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Oh, Margo, this has been so great. It has. I have to say, Sarah, You're one of these people that whenever I have a conversation with you, and it hasn't been often, I always feel an immediate ease with you, comfort and connection. You know, I don't know that I could have had this conversation with just anybody. Mm -hmm. So I very much appreciate that in you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's interesting. I mean, I get that feedback a lot and it's like, I want to like, yeah, I want to just like, okay, yes, I'm a person that makes people feel comfortable. You do. I'm going to take that. It is your jam. It is absolutely just who you are on the planet. So thank goodness for that. Mm, well, thank you. Do you want to share welcome. folks your, your website and all your links, yes. places where they can find yes. you? Right. And be not afraid. <laughs> it is the junipercenter.com and juniper like the tree, the trees that grow out of rocks and in the most inhospitable, lousy places. And they thrive anyway, not Jupiter like the planet. So thejunipercenter.com. And we have an amazing team of people who have lots of different skills. And we're just around the Chicagoland area. And actually, we've been doing telehealth. We're now in Florida, Wisconsin, Indiana, and soon to be Iowa. Wow. We are having some fun. (laughs) 
I don't know whether that was sarcastic. If for, if I were the one saying that, that would have been sarcastic out of my <laughs> no, mouth. I mean but it. I mean it. It's it really, yeah, the business part of therapy practice. I am really enjoying at this point. And oh, I have good. hired my brother to work with us. So for the first time, I'm getting to see him. You know, we oh. have this other new relationship. So it's great. So yes, I am at thejuniperscenter.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. This is, I think this is a going to be a really moving conversation for a lot of folks. Oh, well, thank you so much for the invitation, Sarah. And please stay connected. I really do want to stay connected with you and have us be in each other's spheres. I'd like that. Thanks so much to Margot for being a guest today. And thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. If you'd like to know more about Margot and her work, you can check her out on our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks so much. Until next time. Bye-bye.